right, so uh, this evening we're going to do Martin Heidegger, um, who, um, one of the most famous and most controversial philosophers of the 20th century. If Wittgenstein isn't the most influential philosopher of the 20th century, then it's almost certainly Heidegger. They're, they're sort of tied, or, or close to being tied, for most important person. Um, you'll, you'll understand why he is controversial as a lecture proceeds. Uh, a warning about Heidegger. Professional philosophers find Heidegger's writing opaque. <laughs> so he's sort of very difficult. My philosophy professor when I was an undergraduate, one of them called his box turtle Heidegger. Because <laughs> it, it, it took it forever to do anything. And so he named it Heidegger and it seemed appropriate to him. So um, if you read, if you've had a chance to peruse the selections in here, these are not particularly hard to follow sections that I chose. I tried to find some that might have made sense. And so he wrote very long books just like this. Um, and it is probably easier to read Heidegger in translation because the translators are working to make him clearer um, than he was in the original just true, than he was in the original German. In Germany, he's doing all kinds of word games and tricks uh, that make him even more confusing. Um, so he's one of the few people you might be better off reading in translation. So, uh, Heidegger was born 1889 in Meskirk, Germany. Uh, important two things to, to note about this. One, very rural. Two, very Catholic. Um, it, important to think that Heidegger was born in, you know, sort of 1704. Um, it, it's, it's, it says 1889, but for where he was, how he was raised, and his life was very isolated, sheltered, and extremely Catholic. Uh, and in, in the sense of, it was just taken for granted. There's no controversy about religion, really. There was a little schism inside the Catholic Church when he was growing up. But sort of there's this inner Catholic feud. That was the big question. What flavor of Catholic were you going to be? The notion that you might not be Catholic, the notion that you know Protestants existed, um, these things were sort of, they must have been known, but not so much in, in Meskirk, Germany. Right? They didn't really penetrate very far. He grew up actually in the church, literally in the church. His father worked for the church, and so they had what we would call, call a manse, sort of a house attached with, associated with the church itself. Um, and so, you know, he, he was indissoluble from this environment, and his entire life he really never leaves it. It's one of the important things to note. A very idyllic childhood, he always refers to his childhood as being wonderful. He enjoyed it very much, he enjoyed the church very much, the beauty of it. He was a bell ringer and a choir boy and the, and the entire experience. So he sort of lived this model, idyllic, rural German childhood um, steeped in the traditions of the Catholic Church. Well, as he grows up, he, he is obviously a bright young lad, and so, but not wealthy. They don't have money, per se. Um, and so the church gives him a scholarship, first to sort of a private high school, the, the near equivalent of a private high school, um, and then to a Jesuit university. Well, Jesuit university, sort of a Jesuit part of a university. Um, what's important here is both of them, both of them were monastic in or, organization and actually in history. 
His high school was in an old monastery run by priests as if it were still a monastery. His university, the section that he was in, was in an old monastery run by Jesuit priests as if it were a monastery. And so here's a person who goes from rural Germany, very rural, very isolated culturally, steeped in the church, through two layers of education that were essentially monastic. So on one hand, his mind is very free-roaming. Uh, he did deep research and he studied medieval monastic monks, which is, of course, fitting for someone from this background. And his original idea was that he wanted to bring the philosophical insights of the medieval Catholic thinkers into the modern world, which is the same bridge that he was trying to make. And he thought, if I can save the core of, of the thinking that was going on, um, and bring it into the modern age, then I can bring the stability and the organization and the virtues of the church into a world uh, where those are sort of fading. This was his original goal of his research. Uh, one thing to notice, it, it's often one of our biases, is we think, oh, Middle Ages, right? Those people were, you know, they were dumb. Those guys weren't, you know, very smart. They're in those churches. Their minds are all warped and whatnot. Um, really, it turns out that people have been about equally smart forever. Um, and, and the Catholic monks were doing some very fine research. They had a few problems, of course, um, that were going to limit their, their, the, the direction their thought could take, and certainly the thoughts that they could write down, whether they were thinking them or not. Um, but they were doing some very fine research, and, and this is what Heidegger was working on. And so he had this rich tradition of first-rate philosophical reflection within the context of the church that he was trying to reorganize and sort of modernize without destroying the core of it. At some point, this doesn't work very well. Uh, and he realizes that the real problem is, is he doesn't believe in God or the church. <laughs> right? So this is a tension that exists for Heidegger. That, that here you are, you're in a monastery, essentially, you're being paid for it. He took this very seriously, but they're actually paying him to be there. The church is. And he's supposed to be the like standard bearer that's going to bring this philosophical tradition into the modern age. Um, and, and he sort of starts to waver. And, and you can see this immediately in his career. They sense this. One of his scholarships doesn't get renewed. And he's like, oh, why? And they're like, well, how are you doing, Heidegger? And he's like, oh, no, I'm good. And they're like, yeah, we don't think so. <laughs> you think you're getting a little crazy here, right? And so they're getting suspicious of him, and he's getting suspicious of them. Um, but at this time in Germany, the stakes are pretty high for him because publications were put out by the church. So if he stays working the way he has been, uh, being agreeable to them, doing first-rate scholarship within the context of the medieval Catholic tradition, he's guaranteed that what he writes, because it is first-rate, will be published, read, taken seriously. His career is essentially guaranteed. Could take a couple of different tracks, but he's, he's, he's good to go. If he abandons the church, well, he loses his scholarship, he loses his education, and he loses the outlet for his publication. But then where do you go? One, it, it, you know, everybody says, oh, well, you're not a philosopher, you're a Catholic scholar. So non-Catholic philosophical tradition has very limited interest in somebody with this background, but you know, Catholic Jesuit tradition really doesn't like to give scholarships to people who don't believe in the church anymore. Um, and so he, he's torn. 
And what he ends up doing is sort of sticking it out. He convinces himself for a while that this is good. And he gets his degree, um, and yeah, it, it, he, he's torn. He really doesn't know what to do. Um, and into this sort of gap appears the phenomenological movement um, for him intellectually. There's other things, of course, going on. Um, and the big champion there is, is Husserl. There's another philosopher we could have done in this series. Um, and what has happened is, if you can think about what Heidegger has done, is he's been in an idealist mode. And there's two big schools of philosophy, sort of roughly. You can have the idealists who say the world... There's these things out there, things like God, which is an ideal. We can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it. Or the truth, or the a priori truth, if you want to talk about Kant. Or the teleology of history, right? You can't kick the teleology of history. It's not there. It's an ideal that we project into the, into the world. And then you have the materialist school. And the materialist school say, no, if you can't kick it, why are we talking about it? <laughs> Right? You, if, you, if you can't somehow interact with it physically, viscerally, if you can't feel it, touch it, taste it, smell it, then it, it's not important. For a hundred years, the idealists have been triumphant. Uh, Kant and Hegel being the two great flag bearers of the idealist movement of, of, of all time. Marx is the one counterpoint to that. With what you know, call materialism, historical materialism. Hegel, historical idealism. Marx, historical materialism. He's like, takes the same idea, but instead of using idealist groundings, material groundings. So you have Marx doing this, and you have Husserl doing this, with a movement called phenomenology. What phenomenology was an attempt to do was philosophize the groundings of science. You may remember this from Russell. It's the same project. Look, we don't believe in religion anymore. We don't believe in God. We don't believe in governments. We don't believe in kings or monarchies or the aristocracy. We've gotten rid of all that. Or theoretically, we've gotten rid of all that. Um, well, what do we believe in? It turns out what they believed in was science. Remember how hard Russell is working to salvage all of the truths of his youth through mathematics. If we can just get to the truth, if we can found it and, and prove it to be pure, we'll be there. This is one of the reasons that science at the turn of, of, of the 20th century is so enticing. It's absolutely enticing. Because it, it stands in for all the beliefs that have been destroyed. This is one of the things that infuriated Nietzsche. He's like, we didn't tear down all the old idols to build a new one. And, and everybody else is like, no, yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely. That's, why, that's exactly what we're doing, right? Russell's like, don't be confused. That's what I'm doing. Uh, and the phenomenological movement very much invested in this. And what phenomenology did, and, and Husserl in particular, pointed out, and I'll give you a long example of this in a second, is that what you want to do is pay very close attention to your experience of the world, of phenomena, hence the title, just phenomena, it's just experience. You receive phenomena, you receive sensory input, that is the world. That's what we should talk about, that's what philosophy should deal with. Um, right about this time, World War I happens. Um, and, and if people in Germany were a little discontented and um, dismayed prior to World War I, World War I sort of put a little cap on that, right? Uh, it totally destroyed the old social structure of Germany and the ideals of Germany. 
right? Many idealists shifted from religion to the German nation uh, Bismarck, as it's called Bismarckian culture camp, the notion that the superiority of German culture would, would set the day, it set the tone and rescue us. Um, and that's all destroyed in World War I. Heidegger served exactly the way Sartre did in World War II. He was a weatherman, kind of a curious uh, parallel there, which means he didn't really see a lot of action, but he did get to see his country pretty much totally destroyed. Um, and so he thought, well, what does that mean? What do we do? And this break sort of gave him, rather than making him despair, he, he found it liberating. He's like, okay, we've done with that Catholic tradition. We've done with that idealist crap. Materialism. Let's go to the materialist route. And so he becomes a very ardent follower, briefly, of Husserl, the founder of phenomenology. And Husserl sort of anoints him as his successor, the guy that's going to carry on the tradition of, of the phenomenological philosophical project. And this allows Heidegger to make the transition from Catholic scholar to respected philosopher, which is a, a big jump. Um, so here's what Husserl was arguing, and then I'll, say what, I'll give you an example of what um, Heidegger did almost immediately after that. He broke with Husserl very quickly, and you'll see why. And this is from an actual example that Heidegger gives in a lecture. And it was the lecture where Husserl realized that Heidegger probably wasn't the guy he thought he was. So, um, the lectern. We see the lectern. But what is it we actually see? How do we experience it? Husserl said to figure that out, what we have to do is put ourselves in a special place where we watch ourselves experiencing things. He says, normally we just experience crap. Stuff just happens, it, it, you know, we take it in, it's warm, it's hot, it's light, it's cold, it jabs us, it tastes good, who knows, right? Just things happen to us, we take it in, but we don't watch things happening to us. And so Husserl's big method was to say, no, we've got to try and stand outside of ourselves a little bit and focus on what actually happens when we see something like a lectern. So I want everybody to close your eyes. Close your eyes, close your eyes. And then try and just clear your mind. And then when you open your eyes, try and see yourself seeing the lectern. So open your eyes. Thank you. So uh, open your eyes, right? And that's, that's what Husserl wanted to study. What do we actually see? Um, the Impressionists, by the way, were working in a similar mode here. They said you don't see figures often. What you see is maybe color. Right? Maybe the first thing you notice is it's sort of got a form and it's got some color. And so Husserl explores this state of being, the state of being that is observing what you're doing. Um, and, and he calls this basically thinking. He says what we normally call thinking is not thinking. What thinking is, is thinking about the thinking that you do. <laughs> you get that? It's like two removes. Like you do something, you think about that, and it's no, it's watching yourself think about what it is that you do, the experiences that you have. Whatever you can derive from that, that's what we should be talking about. Because you can never experience something like God, 
or uh, the transcendence of history, or the teleology of man's cultural development. We shouldn't talk about that. It's not real. And notice this is what science does. Science tries to isolate a phenomenon, take some kind of device that measures, records, triggers, does something with it, and then says what that is. You watch the device making a record of a phenomenon. So uh, Husserl is trying to import scientific models of knowledge construction from the hard sciences into the much softer science of philosophy. Uh, very, very soft science. Extraordinarily soft. Uh, and, uh, and, and build not transcendent truth. Notice that you give up on this notion of transcendent truth very quickly. Because he said, look, it's going to be different. People are going to perceive different things, and that's okay. But by and large, we can agree that we have this lectern here. And, and, and we're in business. And so you build your philosophy from the phenomenon itself. Not from ideas down into the world, but from the phenomena of the world, and then base it from there up into the land of ideas and culture in bigger forms. So in Heidegger's lecture, he says, ah, it's all very nice, very interesting, and in many ways true. However, when... I come, being the lecturer, and this again, this is straight from Heidegger's lecture, when I come to lecture, I expect there to be a lectern here. What I meet are my expectations. If the lectern were not here, I would be surprised. And in fact, this is a different lectern, just coincidentally tonight. I don't know where this handle came from. It's never been there before. And I was like, oh, it's perfect, because it's not the lectern that's supposed to be here. Right? And he said, this notion there, and you all come expecting there to be a lectern here, and if there's not a lectern here, you'll be like, oh, I wonder where maybe you're not, or maybe you didn't even remember that. <laughs> right? But if I'm not here, you'll notice that. <laughs> Eventually, right? 605, 610, 615, you're really noticing. So this notion that we carry part of the world with us, we've pre-constructed it. I was waiting for a friend to join me at lunch earlier this week, and I thought, see, this is what happens. My experience of my lunch, or the appetizer at this point, is completely different because I expect someone to be there, right? We, we all know this. You can sit there by yourself, oh, well, you focus on the food, it's, it's wonderful, great sunny day. But if you're expecting somebody else, well, it's not the same. Now, is that a phenomenon? It, this is back to the question of there's not a rhinoceros in the room that Wittgenstein wanted to talk about. What the hell does that mean? There's not an imaginary object that you would not expect to be here anywhere in the room? What kind of statement is that? You can't make a positive statement like that, can you? Um, and Heidegger said, well, it's tricky. This is very. It turns out that this is very tricky getting in this position of figuring out, yes, we take in phenomena, but we don't just take in phenomena. And what he wants to do on one hand, and this is why it gets so confusing, is he says, one of our problems is we have this subject-object dichotomy that still exists in phenomenology and in the sciences and all over the place. Most particularly, it exists in our language. I see the lectern. Notice, I can't hardly say that any other way. 
And Heidegger is saying, no, but that's not what happens. We just ran the experiment. We open our eyes. We see a form. We see color. We see shape. We see a collection of our expectations, matter fulfilled, memories, projections towards the future, Maybe I'm hungry. I don't know why this guy's talking about the stupid lectern still. <laughs> right? And, and all of that happens simultaneously. It's not really possible to pull all those threads apart. Um, it's not all phenomena. But it's certainly not I over here see my eyes are doing this work, the lectern, which is this thing that is right there. Because really, strictly speaking, what the hell is a lectern? I mean, you can say, I see a wood box. That at least makes some sense because we have a definable material and a definable shape. I see a wood box that's used to lecture behind. Sort of makes more sense. But our language pre-constructs the world. It puts me in a position that allows me to pretend like I see the world in a very tight phenomenological way when in fact we don't. It's not like that at all, really. And so the first thing Heidegger wants to do is change the way we use language. <laughs> right? That's tricky, right? Because we didn't create the language, and a lot of people speak it besides us. And so unless you can get a consensus of everybody else to change the fundamental grammar of the language, you're stuck. And so if you read through these quotes in Heidegger, you'll notice he used a lot of words, a lot of strange sentence structure, um, it's because he's trying to work against the illusion of the world that is created by language. And one of the primary for forms of that illusion is this subject-object division. We have people throwing grammar, right? What do you got? You got the subject of the sentence, you have the object. Like Heidegger's like, no, that's not, that's not it at all. And when language goes subject-object, it's producing this lie. That's a lie that we enjoy very much and we're happy to go with. <laughs> but if we start thinking about it, it's not quite right. So, like, so this is one problem that he was coming at. Um, the second problem is the problem of being. Right? So you have the language problem. And what he really wants to talk about is the question of being, that observing of yourself. He loved this part of phenomenology. He thought this is Husserl's real breakthrough, not this whole phenomenon crap but this notion of observing yourself, this being question. And it goes back, because this is a question that Socrates raises. By the way, Socrates raises all philosophical questions. In case you're wondering, it's always Socrates. <laughs> it's like everybody, everything you want to know, Socrates talked about it. Um, at one, one, I think it's in the Phaedo. Um, he walks into a dinner party and says, oh, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we're discussing essentially being." We've got that all wrapped up. He's like, oh, that's great, because I never understand what being means. And of course, by the time he leaves, nobody else understands it. <laughs> which is what Socrates does. He reduces the level of understanding around him. Right? He just went around and confused everybody. Right? And this is sort of what Heidegger does. I don't know if he ever... Gee, he just sort of... He reduces what we understand, which it can be positive in a way. I think the best if you think of Heidegger's philosophy is like a crab. And, you know, if you poke a crab, like put their claws up and they snap and they walk backwards. <laughs> this is how Heidegger does philosophy. <laughs> right? He sort of fights you off and backs away. And you're like, what? I just want to know something. Yeah, you just know. No, he's not going to let you do that. 
So this is what he's doing. He wants to take these ideas that we think we know, that we think we understand very intuitively and concretely and show us that no, we don't understand them at all. Um, but still stick with this materialist foundation because he's really broken with the idealist movement for the time. We'll see he has a bit of a slip coming up. So this brings out his big work, Being and Time. So if you want to write a philosophical work that covers the big stuff, write Being and Time. <laughs> right, because that, that pretty much sums it up. Um, and in this he points out, uh, I, I can't even begin to cover everything he points out in here. And what his work for the rest of his life was, was an elaboration of Being and Time. That is, it's very clear. If you're going to read anything by Heidegger, read Being in Time, because that, it's all there. Um, and what he does is unpack, explore, complicate, if you can believe that, um, <laughs> elaborate the ideas that he presents originally in that book. Uh, it's really the, the, the central book for him. Um, and he points out a, a couple of things. One, that when we ask what being is, you have to be a particular kind of being to ask the question of being. <laughs> See, you have to put yourself in a particular intellectual, linguistic mindset to say, what is the question of being? And so the question of being presumes the question of being. It's already been answered. Just the asking of it answers the question of being because that's where you have to be to ask the question. <laughs> and he says, this is no good because most of the time we don't ask the question of being. And so it's a very peculiar place to be, to be the kind of being that asks questions about being. Does that make any sense? <laughs> so, right? Thank you. Yeah, just no, it doesn't. It really doesn't. So, right, I, I can't... Yeah, it... it most of the time, right, we don't worry about being. Most of the time, we're basically cows, right? We're happy, we're ruminating our grass, eating clover, sun shines on us, we're happy, it's cold, we're sad, life is good. Um, rarely do we position ourselves in the very odd, in fact, awkward, intellectually awkward place of trying to actually question the very nature of our own existence. It's not easy. Notice that the sentence, I see the lectern, presumes me. But, this is the, the, but that's the question that Heidegger wants to ask. Okay, let's stop at the I. What the hell does that mean? Well, it means me. Okay, well, that's helpful. Thank you. But if you, if you look at the grammar of our language, and, and, and pretty much every language, except Sanskrit, by the way, uh, of every language, pretty much, you, you, all you end up is this series of I, me, uh, us, myself, you, which is just, you know, taking the same concept and pushing it around the table. You didn't do any work with it. And what he says is, is to say I, you have to be the kind of being that can feel I and say it without feeling any problems with your being. It's a very uncomplicated, simple form of, of, of existence. By the way, how do you go on like, for like 800 pages? Just <laughs> sentence after sentence, just like that. Um, and so he says, what we have to do is, back to the phenomenological uh, methodology here, is put ourselves in a space where we can see ourselves being the kind of being that asks our question of being. <laughs> like, like, see how he just keeps backing away? When the thing, that's what I'm telling you. 
And so he said there's two parts of this. One is Gosstein, and he takes this from a guy, Hugo Wolf. Um, so this was not actually, some of these problems he didn't invent. But Hugo Wolf says, look, there's two kinds of being in the world. I think it's Hugo Wolf. I think that's right. Uh, Bosstein, which is sort of what is, and Dasein, that it is. And these are two completely different modes of existence. Right? The notion that something does exist, that's one issue. What is it? It's, it is. It is, and then, that it is, what it is. I exist. I see the lectern. I exist. Great. What is this thing that is this I? That it is, and what it is. Um, Heidegger shortens this, that it is, to docile. He makes this one word. You'll see that a lot. I, I took a bunch of sections just on this one concept and put it in there. Um, and shortens it. And he says, this question, that it is, is the question of existence itself. And this is what he focuses on a lot. What does it mean for something to exist? To be the kind of thing that exists. More importantly, what is it to be the kind of thing that is aware of its own existence? Notice, most things don't have this problem, as far as we know. Rocks are perfectly good with their concept of being. Right? It's this bizarre capacity of the human mind to reflect on itself, which creates all this trouble. But Heidegger says, not only does it create all this trouble, it is the nature of being. Being is the capacity to look at your own existence and be confused by it. <laughs> Seriously. I, I don't, that's, he called it the capacity for anxiety. Uh, other places he calls it the capacity for annihilation. You, you have to be able to look at yourself and realize that there's this big blank void there where we want to find being. And the more you look at it, the less you're going to find, or the more confusing things you're going to find. Um, as if that weren't complicated enough, he further complicates this by, by pointing out a, a few other obvious but troubling aspects of this, is that when I ask about being, I'm asking about a particular type of being. Like myself, you, people, the universe. So being the kind of being that's capable of asking shapes this whole field in one way. What you question shapes it in another way. So just the way and the direction in which you ask the question sort of transforms the field of being that you are in fact looking at. You can't. You have to ask about the being of something, even if you're asking about the being of nothing, which he does do. Uh, I talk about difficult to follow passages. Uh, he does ask that. What about the being of nothing? But if you ask about the being of nothing, you've shaped the whole notion of your relationship to existence, or the watching watching of your relationship to existence, as being quite different from if you had asked about the nature of the being of a tree. Your mindset would be different. Your expectations are different. And so, and so part of this is, is just pointing out that we're already, always, already being. 
And so we can't get out of it. We can't get behind. There is no out, underneath, behind, escape from being. You have to be. And therefore, when you question being, you're questioning an aspect of something that always already precedes you. And therefore is not, you can't get basically a scientific grip on it. It's always inside of you or inside of your system. You're always being in the world or being with the world. Um, Two uh, distinctions that he makes, but probably won't go into. Um, All right, so it's confusing, but but, but really the core of this is the notion if you think about it and you try and monitor your own experiences of the world, you'll see very quickly that how we exist in the world is really not as cut and dried as you would think, particularly if you don't think about it. Uh, (laughs) The more you reflect on it, the, the, the more confusing it becomes. For instance, again, why, if I'm at a table at a restaurant and everything is exactly the same, the idea that someone may be coming to join me completely transforms the experience. Right? Nothing physical has changed. No, this is why where he parts very much. No phenomenological encounter that is just exactly the same. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm looking into the future, predicting a state of my existence, a type of being, or what it is in this case, a box line, and saying, I do not correlate with that type of being yet. And therefore, I'm either a little uneasy or dissatisfied or just expectant. And my mode of being, therefore, vacillates a lot, not just on external stimuli, but on my thinking about how I should be constantly reshapes our our sense of being and in the complicated feedback loops. Um, But again, nothing phenomenologically has actually changed in that experience. So he wants to look at this very closely. Notice that also introduces a second aspect. Being and time. Our being always takes place in time, Heidegger argues. What we're mostly doing, not always, but often, is this sort of future projection back on ourselves. We can't freeze ourselves and say, okay, I'm freezing myself now. It's impossible. Because we move. We're always moving in time. So he says the other aspect you need to complicate the already plenty complicated notion of being is the fact that it's always changing. It's the Heraclitus, you can't put your foot in the same river twice. Because the river is always flowing, transforming, being remolded by currents and eddies. Um, And so what you're observing is not just being changed by the observation of it, by the expectation of your observations of it, but by the fact that Time is passing as you observe it. Being and time. So this is his big book. Everybody's been waiting for this book. And it comes out and it's almost immediately recognized, pretty much immediately recognized by um, all the people who matter, which is, you know, 20 different philosophers in Germany, that this is a significant work. That this really is a a major piece of, of, of philosophical thinking that is pushing the insights of phenomenology very far and raising a question that has been asked forever about being, about ontology, as the whole field of philosophy called ontology, 
Um, and really, Heidegger saying, well, you have the question of being, but I want to ask the question that's beneath the question of being. Um, and this kind of blows philosophers away, and it makes his name pretty much instantly. He becomes a professor at the University of Freiburg. For a while, he's put up to be the professor of, of the University of Berlin, which is something like, uh, we have no, I'm, I'm trying, it's like, it's the best possible thing you could do as a philosopher. Uh, to be even proposed for the University of Berlin is you, that that's the height. I mean, you would be having dinner with the Kaiser, with the nobility, um, with the wealthiest people. I mean, you would be sort of an intellectual star. We don't have any, I guess I can't think of any equivalent that we would have today, culturally speaking. Um, and But he gets the one at, at Freiburg, which is an excellent school, excellent choice. And it's about this time um, that, so the whole time this has been going on, Weimar Republic in Germany, which is the democratic republic that follows the collapse of World War I, has been itself collapsing. It, it, it's a wreck. It's a mess. It's, uh, you know, every kind of problem. The economy, of course, the world economy is going downhill fast because of the Great Depression. They have the war reparations issue. They have internal dissension. You have the communists. You have socialists. You have the rising national socialists movement. Um, and all anybody can agree on is that we don't like these liberal Republicans who are trying to run a Weimar democracy. Everybody hated them, or almost everybody. And so that's falling apart. Um, and just as Heidegger is really making his name for himself, he decides, you know what? This national socialism looks really, really good. Yeah, it's just a, it's, yeah, it's not a good call, it turns out. Um, but uh, he... It's almost it's amazing because at this same moment that he's hooking himself up completely with the Nazi Party and Adolf Hitler in particular and specific, um, he's also dating Hannah. Dating, he's having an affair with Hannah Arendt, who is the uh, Jewish anti-totalitarian intellectual, one of the great intellectuals of the 20th century, who was both the love of his life, his main student, and her main intellectual sort of father, and also uh, you know lover. So that's a kind of interesting uh, set of dichotomies there. Um, so Heidegger goes nationalist, socialist, hard. Um, you, it's, this is hard to believe, but this is more or less the sketch of it. So the, the Nazis take power through various sort of devious and not so devious routes. Um, and once they're in power, they want to consolidate their grip on everything. And Heidegger thinks this is spectacularly good. Um, and so he gets named provost of the University of Freiburg. And what he immediately tries to do is, A, basically make the rest of the faculty uh, lick his boots, right? They must worship the National Socialist Party, do exactly what it says, and keep, his, to keep their mouths shut. To the point where he has them lining up in brown shirts, saluting the flag, doing military marchings around the parade ground, the whole bit, right? Um, he also is instrumental in getting started and lobbies hard to be the head of a new school in Germany that will be founded in Berlin. And you will have to attend that school for, I think it's two years, might be a year, but I think it's two years, to get the National Socialist stamp of approval before you can go to a college or a university in the country. <coughs> Which would mean in ten years, the only people who would be coming out of the universities at all would all have been had this, you know, intellectual indoctrination of the national socialist system prior to being able to go to school. So it was a conscious, he wrote this all out perfectly clearly, attempt 
to produce an absolute, I guess, brainwashed or ideologically fine and focused collection of university professors and teachers and hence transform the higher education of Germany forever. That was his plan. With him as the head, humbly <laughs> leading this, of course. Um, so, yeah, now, not to defend Heidegger per se, but here's what he's responding to. Um, when World War One happened, this is what a lot of people went for National Socialism early in Germany, by the way. Um, the democracy has failed. There's no question about that. Um, it could not figure out how to deal with the manifold problems facing uh, Germany at that time. It's not clear anybody could have, by the way. I don't know I just what system they could have put in place that might have dealt with it. No one knows. Um, but certainly the, the Weimar Republic couldn't hold it together. And so uh, look, look at the kind of very small economic mess we're in now. Multiply that by a thousand times. Add that your country is surrounded by very hostile neighbors. Hostile, by the way, because you just hit them with a bat, right? Um, um, and, and you don't know what the future holds, and your government keeps collapsing over and over and over again. Right? We voted the Bush administration out of office and the Republicans um, basically because they screwed everything up. Right? Now imagine that the Obama administration screws it up worse, Ooh. which is hard to imagine. I mean, they'd have to get up a lot earlier than they are to screw it up worse. But imagine they pull that off. And then you vote in another administration and things get worse. At what point do you say, you know what, this is not working. Voting people in, things get worse. Okay, we have another election, things get even worse. We have another election, things get really bad. So there's that aspect of it, of the country really was collapsing. The other aspect of it is the desire, even though he tried to go, he abandons the Catholic Church, that whole rural Germany thing, the desire for order and for belonging. Right? The problem with liberalism and liberal systems is everybody gets to do what they want which means that everybody gets to do what they want. <laughs> which means that nobody can say, you're doing the right thing, I'm doing the wrong thing, I'm doing the wrong thing, or the right thing, you're bad. Hey, it's all open. So where do you find meaning? Where do you find truth? Where do you find real values? And Heidegger said, look, you find real values in the community. It was the socialist part of the National Socialism he really loved. The communalism of it. If you could build a strong, intellectually vibrant community of shared values and principles, then we'd have a new future. Then we could launch the new world. Um, and he thought Hitler was definitely the, the voice of that. Um, not particularly anti-Semitic, um, which is, you know, in his defense, he was not part of the anti-Semitic crowd. He, he didn't do a lot to prevent it from happening, by the way. It's not like he's going out of his way uh, to do much on that front. But he was not, he, he just didn't feel that way, he never wrote that way, and he did some things when he was rector to protect some of the Jewish professors. Um, but 1932, 33, 34 rolls along. Um, Heidegger resigns as rector of the University of Freiburg. This is what saves him after the war, by the way. He resigns because the Nazis are going too far, militarizing, too much censorship, repressing people. No. 
He resigns because the Nazis are not doing enough to revolutionize the country or the universities. They keep interfering with his attempt to enforce strict national socialist ideology at the University of Freiburg. And he finally says, look, you high Nazi officials, if you're going to keep moderating my policies and hemming me in, I don't want to be rector anymore. Which is hard to believe. <laughs> it's true. It's hard. He really, when I, he went hard national socialist. So hard that the, Na the Nazis, like around Hitler, so they knew who he was. He was a famous philosopher. were like, ooh, that Heidegger. A little nuts on the national socialism. <laughs> you know, Zeke Heil and all, but you know, he's a little crazy. And so they were they were literally like hemming him in. Ooh, we don't, let's promote him, we keep him down, we've got to moderate his policies. He's getting a little crazy out there in Freiburg. A little further on our program than we want him to. And so he says, well, fine then, I resign. And so it turns out he resigns. And so that's about 35, just before things get really bleak. Ah, and that saves him because after the war, he gets to say, look, I resigned at the Post, National Socialist, 1935. I wasn't a real Nazi. Which is not true at all. He was more real than the real Nazis. <laughs> that you were so real that he came out the other side somehow magically. I don't know. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, anyway... Uh, he did a lot of unpleasant things to a lot of people while he was there. I mean, not re relative to the scale of fa not fascism, Nazism, not that unpleasant. He didn't kill anybody or anything, but people lost their post because they were either Jewish or they were speaking out against the liberal policies of the, of the early National Socialist regime or they attacked aspects of Hitler's plans, all this. So he was in no way a good guy uh, at this time. Um, so the war comes, of course, and everything is destroyed. He's living in rural Germany. In a way very undisturbed by the war. Um, there was a little bombing very late on, but uh, they were conquered by the, or taken by the French, which makes a big difference, by the way, at the end of World War II, if you're conquered by the French, the Americans, or the Russians. More fun if you're taken by the French or the Americans. Um, um, and so, but the whole time, he's still a famous worldwide philosopher within that realm. And so, uh, Germany would send him on philosophical conferences very, until very late, like 1939, 1940. He's going to conferences in England um, and in Italy um, and other like neutral, like Spain, where philosophers still want to gather, um, but you know politics is making it difficult. But they let him leave the country repeatedly, and he carried the flag of National Socialism to all these conferences, and it really upset a lot of the other philosophers. They said, "Why are you being such an ideologue?" He's like, because Hitler's right. That's what he would say. Hitler's right. Um, so the war unwinds, and um, the French basically want to imprison him. Um, there's some negotiations, and he's just, for about four or five years, he can't teach anymore. He has to re go to rural Germany and just leave well enough alone <laughs> in the denazification process. And then one of the amazing turns in history happens. So he's sort of persona no grata in Germany because all the intellectual class knows that this guy was a hardcore intellectual fascist. And they want nothing to do with him. But if you remember the Sartre lecture, just before the war, Sartre was in Germany studying Heidegger. <laughs> Immediately after the war, Heidegger, uh, Heidegger, Sartre publishes Being and Nothingness, 
Notice the title, <laughs> which makes him uh, just hugely famous, as we discussed. More importantly, all of a sudden, everybody's interested in Heidegger. So while he cannot teach in Germany because he's a fascist, he becomes famous in France. <laughs> and attends lectures, gives interviews, his books are translated, he's more famous than he's ever been while being denazified in rural Germany. History is a funny thing. Um, that's all I can say. Um, he, he does a lot of lying at this time to try and protect himself. It's really not until the 1980s that, that the entire history of his involvement with the, with the Nazi party was worked out. Um, that's how recently. He died in 76. 76. Um, and, and so a lot of these details were not known. But it is clear that Hannah Arendt, after the war, they become great friends again. They reconcile. Um, and she goes right back to him. Um, she, she, she loved him her whole life. He said she was the love of his life, but certainly her intellectual mentor. How that works, again, when she was this huge... I guess that's how you know totalitarianism, right? You sleep with it. Um, um, but what happens is, in Sartre's sort of reimagining of Heidegger's questions of being, you get the opposite of what Heidegger had done. Sartre imagines it as a liberatory understanding of being that puts the individual in the center. Heidegger had imagined it as a, a being that wants to be tied to the group to find identity. Sartre's version of Heidegger is much more popular after the war for obvious reasons. And this really allows Heidegger to rejuvenate himself. Four or five years after the war, when you're a famous philosopher all over Europe except in your own country, what do they do? They give you your professorship back. You know, let bygones be bygones, right? He's our most famous living philosopher and he can't even teach in our country. Um, and so everything sort of washes and he's back and do his chair at Freiburg where he stayed for the rest of his life um, teaching. Post-war, his work changes some, but not a lot. Uh, two things to note. One is, he, again, because of Sartre, he becomes hugely influential in all kinds of fields. Again, if not Wittgenstein, then probably he, Heidegger, is the single most influential philosopher um, um, in, in the 20th century. And if you look at that list, you can see why. Because he's influencing people in existentialism, in psychology, uh, in linguistics, all these fields, because he asks these very fundamental questions about existence, about being, about how we are in the world. The other thing that happens is, and he was always a big lover of nature, by the way, part of growing up in rural Germany. Um, his later writings, or even mid to later writings, become increasingly uh, interested in the question of man's relation to nature. Right? If you're going to ask a question of being, he increasingly asked the question of being, not about man in human society. It turned out he didn't answer that well, and so he stopped asking that. But how is man with nature? And he wrote some pretty profound works that read today from our environmental concerns look incredibly prescient about how we should relate and can relate to nature. Um, but again, they tie right into his whole the process he's been going the whole time with being. So I just to give you an idea of one of them. It's called um, "To Build Is to Dwell," and he says, "What does it mean to 
live someplace, to live in the sense of dwell. Germany has a couple of different words for this. To wohnen in Germany means to be comfortable with, to be at peace in, uh, to, to occupy in a communal, cozy, happy way. It even, wohne even means like um, glad or happy occurrence. Um, so when you're, if, if, if someone says, where do you live? And you say, ich wohnt or ich wohne here, that means that's where I really am. If you just happen to be staying in a hotel, you would never use the word wohne. Right? So, so what he's asking is this question, what does it mean to dwell someplace, to really build, to be someplace? And he says, well, for a human being, it always involves a lot of different ways of being, not surprisingly. He immediately returns to that. He says, for instance, he says, if you're a truck driver, you can probably dwell in your truck because you feel at peace there, you feel comfortable there. And he says, we usually think of dwelling as being in buildings, but notice we build bridges, but we generally don't think of dwelling there. And we build houses, but sometimes they aren't very good for living. And so he says, when we talk about living in the sense of dwelling, in the sense of occupying in a meaningful way, he says, we're always invoking four aspects simultaneously. To mention any one of them is to mention all four of them. And this is, again, back to that being notion. There is no place where you can only get one aspect of being because they're always, all of them, already there. And so he says, to, to live someplace is to be on the earth. This seems obvious. But to be on the earth in the sense of to care for the earth. He says, you can't dwell without caring. You can't dwell without sort of in the sense of like animal husbandry, right? the notion of, of you are responsible, you must care, you must cultivate, but not in the cultivate sense of dominate, but cultivate in the sense of to care for and to care for in time with, with an eye on the future. He says it also means to be under the sun, beneath the sky. He says this, it always has this notion of, of an awareness of space and of openness and of, and, of, and of possibilities. He actually calls it divinities, although it's never clear what he means by that. I've never found a Heidegger scholar who has any idea what he means by divinities there. But, it mean, but it's this sort of uh, uh, this freedom of possibilities. And, and the examples they use are, are very, I mean, obvious, but in some ways telling. You know, if you work in your garden, you're cultivating the earth, you're dwelling there, but you look up. He says, this is uniquely human to look up because we are beneath the sky. So we're on the earth, we're beneath the sky, and we're with our buildings. This is a human beings are beings that build. The notion of a human being that doesn't build things, he says it's impossible. We are those things that build. And so the doing of the building is part of the dwelling. We aren't messing around with stuff, rearranging things, fixing it up, taking it down, reordering it, restructuring it, redesigning it. Then we're not existing. And so he says, you have these. You have the, actually, you're on the earth in the sense of cultivating it. You're with it. You must care for it. You're under the sky. That's where we are. You're in your building, or you're with your buildings. He actually says, we exist with them. And then you're with people. We are not alone. We're social beings. He says, anytime you talk about a human living, you're already, always talking about building, 
cultivating under the sky and with other people. You can't invoke the human without mentioning all those things simultaneously. Those are all aspects necessary for a human being to exist, to be, to dwell on the earth. And he argues that what happens, the reason we can't find alone in peace, uh, contentment, is because we mess all those things up. Our buildings are stupid. We don't cultivate, we destroy. Our communities don't function. Right? Our skies are beclouded and, and, and smog. And he's writing this in you know, the, the early, late 40s, early 50s. But what he's really doing is he's reinvoking his past from Messkirk, Germany. He's saying there was a place where people had dwelled for a thousand years without violence. They had cultivated but not destroyed. They had built buildings you could live with and believe in and have a happy childhood with and live with your neighbors in a communally in a happy way. You could, you could bone in there. You could really live. You could be your being there. And so he does this full circle. He goes from this rural isolated, although he doesn't go that far, physically, intellectually, he goes from this isolated, monastic, sort of rural ideal existence into the world where he goes very wrong indeed and takes being in the wrong way. And then after the war... At some level, he recognizes this and then returns and he, and he argues, no, the kind of being that I really want, it turns out, is the kind of being that I had back there uh, in, in Messkirk, Germany. <coughs> and in this way, he enacts, and other people pointed this out, he enacts the, the, the real problem of Germany and has done this over and over again. You know, incredible culture, totally destructive. Um, wonderful arts, you know, horrible historical patterns. Beautiful rural landscapes, blighted industrial factories. How do you reconcile these? Heidegger never does. But what he does do for all of his problems is he raises the question of being to a central place from which it has never left. Since he asked the question, we are still asking the question, and every modern philosopher who's doing any kind of serious work at some level has to address it because it's so problematic. Um, and, and so we really do, we sort of dwell in the mess of Heidegger's being um, in philosophy today. Martin Heidegger. <laughs>